Research that resonates. Schweitzer has not been wrong on any of his years and years of reporting on the Bidens. Investigations that matter. If your last name wasn't Biden, do you think you would have been asked to be on the board of Burisma? I don't know. I don't know. Probably not. But that's, you know, I, I don't think that there's a lot of things that would have happened in my life that, uh, that if my last name wasn't Biden. The only entities, the only people that would report on this, and Peter Schweitzer, who deserves a Medal of Freedom, in my view. This is The Drill Down with Peter Schweitzer. Hi, this is Peter Schweitzer, and welcome to The Drill Down, where we relentlessly expose cronyism, corruption, and the abuse of power in Washington, D.C. And I'm joined by Eric Eggers, author and vice president of the Government Accountability Institute. Now, Shakespeare's play Macbeth was set in Scotland, and now we have the U.N. Climate Change Conference going on in Glasgow, Scotland, and it has all the drama of a Shakespeare play. You have the absent brooding partners, uh, China and Russia, uh, China being the largest emitter of carbon in the world. You have the angst of Joe Biden frustrated because China and Russia are just not there. And he's just lamenting the fact that he can't do more to save the planet. And then, of course, you have the doom and gloom of former President Barack Obama, who spoke about the fear of the existential dread and threat that young people face because we are not taking action quickly enough. Now, I was a political science major, uh, and and I researched and found out that Macbeth is kind of the study about the effects and the damage done by political ambition. But the good news is we actually have an English major here, Mr. Mr. Eggers, uh, can you give us a summation of what Macbeth is about and why it might be relevant to the conversation we're going to have today? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Peter. So, you know, Macbeth, probably Shakespeare's most famous play. Uh, it's about two star-crossed lovers, you know, this boy and the girl that have come from rival political what, families. What? What? And... what, what, what? <laughs> I don't think that's Macbeth. I think that's Romeo and Juliet. Well, that's the one I read, Peter. So. <laughs> So you didn't you didn't do the Shakespeare class. You're an English major, but you didn't do uh, Shakespeare. You know, I thought this was going to be about the climate change. So not, <laughs> not my CV. No, Macbeth is uh, obviously set in Scotland, and it's it's actually considered to be uh, a bad luck play. So people said in the theater, you know, they don't say the name of the play. They call it the Scottish play. Right. Uh, and it's, you know, these three witches, they sort of whisper into the ear of Macbeth, and they say, hey, you're going to be king of Scotland. And then he takes, you know, at his wife's behest and urging – he then commits a murder and takes over the th throne, and uh, you know. Then it's all about the psychological toil and tumult that accompanies one when you know you're in charge and you regret having committed murder. So very relatable. <laughs> So we are going to look at the U.N. Uh, conference uh, on climate uh, that was held in Scotland, uh, and we want to look through the lens we always look through, which is who's going to benefit, who's going to make money. And we're going to try to identify in this context, who are the witches uh, from the Macbeth play in today's uh, current uh, drama. Find, so find you some of this is just life advice for listeners. Find you some of this is committed to you as Peter Schweitzer is the Shakespeare metaphor. OK, <laughs> <laughs> we are sticking with this bad boy. We are. We are sticking with it. We are going to see it through the bitter end. Uh, so let's step back for a minute. I mean, the ostensible purpose of the UN conference is to save the planet, yeah. right? Uh, this existential threat from climate change. We're not going to debate the science today. Uh, there's a lot of disagreement about whether it's man-made, whether it's natural climate change, whether climate change is happening. The question we always want to ask is who is going to benefit from the policy actions that are taking place? Well, absolutely. And it is funny because this is the 26th time they've gathered together, right? Yeah. And so their big picture goal, the, the looming existential threat is, hey, and they said this in the 
2015 climate summit, if the temperature rises another one and a half degrees from 2015, this is the big thing they signed in Paris, then we're all doomed, right? Right. So So the existential threat is we've got to work together to keep the temperature from rising another one and a half degrees. And they've done this 26 times, and well, what do they have to show for it? Well, and that's what, to me, I think you got to give them credit, man. You know, like think every year, hey, this year's the year, you know? Yeah. And even John Kerry has been like, no, we have a lot of enthusiasm this year. It's really exciting. Yeah. Yeah, well, we're going to argue today and I think make the case with overwhelming evidence that the big winner, the biggest beneficiary from this climate conference is not the American people, not the American taxpayer, not even the people of the world. We're going to argue and make the case today that the biggest winner is going to be China. China, which is the largest emitter of carbon in the world by far, is also being set up through a series of maneuvers with the help of certain people in the United States and in Washington, D.C., to to become China, to become the new OPEC. In other words, we're going to replace the old OPEC, which produces oil, with a new OPEC, which is the green economy that we're moving towards, where China dominates in the production of those relevant technologies. And it's quite brilliant, really, what China's doing. You know, chalk one up for central planning, because... Uh, while we're referencing Shakespeare at the beginning, what, Shake, what China has done, and you've done a lot of really great reporting on this, is actually quite Machiavellian, right? Because think about the comparison you just made. OPEC, who are the countries in charge of OPEC? The countries that actually own the oil, right? right? It's in the ground. Yeah, it's you in can't the ground. Like they happen to be geographically proximate to the resources and they're in charge of and sovereign over that space. Right. But China has basically paid enough people and positioned themselves in the right way to now they've created the policies and procedures. I mean- they don't own the sun, right? Right, right. Like they don't, they're not going to They're be, trying to own the sun, but they not, don't own the they're sun. They're not green energy OPEC because they have a unique situation where they have more access to the resources. They've acquired it strategically and they've helped write the rules in such right. a way with compliant partners that the US, many of which we're about to talk about. So, that, I mean, kind of, it is amazing how China stands to be the biggest beneficiary of whatever happens in Scotland. And oh, by the way, they're not even there. That's exactly right. They're not even there. And the bottom line, as we're going to uh, show you today, is that China dominates 80% of solar panel production in the world, meaning when we buy solar panels in the United States, eight out of the 10 times we're buying it from China. Same thing with wind power. That's not by accident. It's policies they've carried out, but they had enablers in Washington, D.C. with famous last names like Podesta that helped to make that happen. But let's start in the past first, right? Let's go back to 2008. This is when we had the first big green push. This was the Obama administration. Uh, Barack Obama was elected in 2008, uh, took in a lot of money uh, then for his campaign. And then he turned around in 2009 and launched his stimulus plan, which meant we spent tens of billions of dollars in government money for green energy products. Uh, projects. And who ended up getting the money from the federal government? Largely, it was Barack Obama's financial benefactors. In in fact, 80% of the Department of Energy's grants and loans that went to green energy companies went to grants and loans to companies that were owned by people who sat on Barack Obama's National Finance Committee of his campaign. It's a stunning statistic, and you should say it again, not just because you're the one that broke that statistic in your book, <laughs> throw them all out. Thank you very much but for I, saying but that. But I do, I do think it's a relevant talking point 
because I mean, you got you know, give Barack Obama a little bit of credit. My man took over with a lot of pressure. Like, not only did he have to heal <laughs> 200 years of racial rift, he had to stop the seas from rising. Remember right. that was his that's big right. thing. That's right. That's right. He we're stood gonna, in front of those columns. We're going right? to do it all, man. Yeah. Everything's yeah. going to be better now. But he does. He takes over, and then you took a look at all the green energy stimulus stuff that they started doing these shovel ready projects and everything right. else because they also had a financial collapse they had to deal with. And you went and looked at it, and again, say the statistics, 80%. So four out of every $5 that the Obama administration spent in the name of fixing the planet's global warming crisis happened to go to people that donated his campaign. That's right, that were on his finance committee. And you want to think, ideally, that when the Department of Energy and the Obama administration is deciding who's going to get these loans and grants, they're going to have all the engineers look at the technology and say, this solar plan is better than that solar plan. That's really not what happened in this case. Remember Solyndra? Well, remember, like, so to your point, like, every, what's one of the key phrases from 2021? Follow the science. Yeah. Right? And you think when it comes to, hey, we're going to dole out green energy grants, we're trying to invest in green energy technology to help save the planet, you think science would be a relevant uh, you piece would think. of the pie. You would think. But in fact, it went to who's our campaign, you know, politically connected people. Exactly. And yes, I do remember Solyndra because Solyndra had this amazing technology. So most, fl- you know, uh, solar panels and what the kids call basic. You know what I mean? Yeah. They're just flat. Yeah. But cylindered, bro. It was all about that change of the game. It was round because <laughs> right, so, right. No, no. It's right. like a solar panel, but it's round. Wow. <laughs> wow. Wow. Because the idea would be a round solar panel would have always more, have a surface face more surface yeah. area exposure. Yeah. It'd be yeah. more efficient. It was going to yeah. do a lot of really cool stuff. And so cylinders potential was so great. And they're in major investors. So politically connected, this guy, George Kaiser, that they received the first department of energy loan guarantee that the Obama administration gave, I think it was 400 or $535 million to Solyndra. Hey, go save the planet. And how to go? Not well, uh, <laughs> For most people. Yeah. The yeah. only people it went well for were George Kaiser. Right. Who- Owned 35% of the company. 35%. You say, well, how'd it go well? Because this country ended up going bankrupt. Well, because American you know, tax laws are what they are. If you're a billionaire and you actually have lost a lot of money, he was able to basically double that loss and carry it over on future taxes. And it's a whole thing. Yeah. But also- uh, China, as it turns out, right? <laughs> because what uh, happened to Solyndra? They go bankrupt in the United States. What happens to Solyndra? Yeah, what happens to Solyndra is what happened to a lot of these American solar panel green technology companies that the Obama administration gave money to. The technology ended up kind of like petering out. These companies go bankrupt. Don't use that word petering out, please. Sorry. And then it ends up being bought up by China on the cheap. Yep, exactly. Well, there's lots of other examples. Solyndra's one example. George Kaiser, a major bundler for Obama's campaign, got $535 million. There was a company called Lucadia Energy. They make that 535 look like nothing. They got $1.6 billion for a project in Indiana. Lucadia Energy got another $1.6 billion for a project in Chicago. Who owned Lucadia? A guy named Ian Cumming, who was on Obama's National Finance Committee for the 2008 campaign. There was another company called Solar Reserve that got a big take too. $737 million in loan guarantees for solar reserve. Uh, your guy, Michael Foreman, who's another major Obama donor, was the reason for that. And there's a company called First Solar. This is maybe the best. Uh, $4.7 Yeah, with a B. First, uh, First Solar and Ted Turner. That's the Ted Turner, right? Yes, that's correct. And he gave more than a million dollars to the Obama campaign. That's right. Uh, You can add another list uh, to a company that uh, ended up being sold out to China. A company called Fisker Automotive got $52 million. The company failed. One of its top investors, 
Al Gore. Didn't seem to put him in the poorhouse, though. He seems like he's still doing okay. Yeah, Al's doing fine. Fisker Automotive went uh, bankrupt. Technology all sold to Beijing, China. Um, and, and that's really the problem when you look at what happened in the technology space. Because one of the things China was doing at the time was it was purposely selling solar panels for less than it actually cost to make. I think that's the crazy part, too. So it's not like China was just this accidental happenstance beneficiary, right? It's not like, oh, you guys didn't do so well. Okay, well, we'll buy this technology. We'll buy your companies up for pennies on the dollar. I mean, the case of Solyndra sort of proves that China was actively involved in weakening market conditions that helped make some of these companies go bankrupt, right? Right. Uh, Solyndra was actually involved in a lawsuit along with the federal government against some Chinese solar companies, including – these names are important – Trina Solar Limited – and Yingli Green Energy Holding Company. Well done. Thank you. Among companies that were sued, and they ended up settling, the, the lawsuit was like $1.5 billion, right? Because yep. yep. that's how much the Department of Energy thinks you, they cost the American taxpayer, the company Solyndra, the green energy industry, period. Because as you noted, they were selling solar panels sort of in a kind of an anti-market thing. Who, who knew that China wouldn't necessarily be playing by the rules of free market. It, 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 it's, it's hard to believe, but it's true. So this history is important for two reasons. Number one, uh, the green uh, energy economy is often about a different kind of green, which is money. So much of this government largesse, whether it's loans or, or grants, end up going to politically connected firms. But number two, China has aggressively worked for a long time to basically undermine American alternative energy or green energy companies by driving them out of business because the Chinese companies Companies are state-backed, state-sponsored. Some of them even use slave labor, by the way. Um, and so they drive out the American um, alternative energy companies so they can then corner the market. And we are now in a situation today where we are expected to buy large quantities of alternative uh, energy products that, of course, are going to be made in China and make them a lot of money. So let's let's move forward from that to the, uh, the Paris uh, Agreement. Um, and this is another fascinating thread through which you can look at China's influence and the fact that certain American elites were getting rich in the process in ways that even benefited China. So I was actually sort of stunned to learn that the Paris Climate Agreement, which we've been told is will save the world, and it was yes. the worst thing ever. It was, like, it was like Donald Trump took a pile of styrofoam and lit it on fire when he <laughs> right, right. backed the United States out of the Paris Climate Agreement, right? right. That's, it was much, much worse for the, for the American environment and for right. the global environment. But then come to find out that if you look at the details, the Paris Agreement actually allows China, this is the deal, China's allowed to increase their footprint, their carbon footprint for the next 10 years, right? Correct. That's the deal. China yep. will continue to ramp up their carbon production until 2030. Yep. We're frozen, yep. but they get to continue to ramp up. And then we sort of have to take them at their word for it because if they don't stop increasing, there's really no penalties. That's exactly right. There's no penalty. It's not even really a legal treaty. But what's interesting is looking at the origins how did we get to the Paris uh, Climate Agreement? And the central person here is John Podesta. John Podesta, of course, very close to the Clintons. He was the one in the Obama administration who negotiated the Paris Agreement with Beijing. Well, before he had that job, he was the head of something called the Center for American Progress. And in 2009, the Center for American Progress started taking money 
for the purpose of creating a environmental negotiation framework from an entity called the China-U.S. Exchange Foundation. Now, this this entity, QCEP, is very interesting. It's been recognized by our U.S. Congress and by a load of experts as really being what's called the United Front Group, which means it's a quote-unquote nonprofit, but it actually works closely with the Chinese government as an influence operation, uh, and it even has links to Chinese intelligence. So this is very interesting. Podesta in 2009 starts setting up a framework for what eventually becomes the Paris Accords, and it's actually funded by a Chinese-linked framework. So say that again, right? Because I think this is a really big deal. So the Paris Agreement framework was set up by John Podesta when he became chief of staff to the Obama administration. Counselor, yes. Head counselor, right? And while he was setting up this framework for what became the Paris Agreement, he was on the Chinese payroll, essentially. Yes. They set up the framework as part of the, the, the nonprofit. He comes into the White House and he adopts the Center for American Progress, QCEF, framework for the Obama administration. In fact, one of his employees at the Center for American Progress ends up being one of the chief negotiators for the Paris uh, uh, Agreement. So everything we just said about how the Paris Agreement most people would say is like wildly beneficial to China. Yes. Right. And you sort of, how did that happen? Well, you know, who's to say specifically, but this may explain part of fun it. fact, yes. right? The people that helped set up the framework <laughs> exactly. were paid by China while they were setting up that framework. Exactly. And here's where it gets really interesting, uh, even more interesting than I think it already is. So John Podesta uh, goes from CAP, where he was taking this money from this Chinese-backed entity, goes into the Obama administration, starts negotiating the Paris Agreement um, with the Chinese. Now, John Podesta has a brother, Tony. Right. Very successful lobbyist. Yeah. Very successful lobbyist. What is Tony doing at the same time that his brother is negotiating with Beijing? Tony takes on a client called the Coalition for Affordable Solar Energy. Seems very, uh, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Like beneficial kind of just, you know, interested in. You know, global utopian yeah. outcomes. Just yeah, it just sounds like a wonderful idealistic organization. Magnanimous is the word I'm looking. That's for. right. Now remember the names of those Chinese energy companies that you butchered earlier in the uh, conversation, and I'm going to do it now. Yingli Green Energy, uh, for example, or Trina Solar, mm-hmm. the, the ones, ones that we sued and they settled for a few million dollars because right. of their role in helping bankrupt Solyndra. Yes, that's right. They're the ones that are actually funding. This entity that Tony Podesta is now lobbying on behalf of. So just think about that for a second. You've got John Podesta negotiating with Beijing. You've got his brother, the lobbyist, being paid through this entity called the Coalition for Affordable Solar Energy. And what this coalition is doing is fighting efforts in Congress to prevent China from dumping solar panels and driving American companies out of business. So the same Chinese solar companies that helped bankrupt, basically helped make U.S. investments in Department of Energy loan grants basically worthless, right? Yes, By helping to bankrupt what a lot of people thought was one of the more promising green energy companies in the United States at this time. Yeah. These Chinese solar companies helped make sure this company would go nowhere, helped bankrupt it. Right. And now they're the ones helping to lay the groundwork for what would become the Paris Climate Agreement, which forces some level of reliance on Chinese solar panels. Absolutely. And which for- they happen to manufacture. Exactly. And forces some reliance. Um, I, I would dare say you're not prone to understatement, but in this case, I think you probably are. Because what it's happened is now, of course, they have 80% of the market. So in, in other words, what we have, and that's sort of moving to the present day, is a circumstance where the Biden administration has made it a priority to spend literally trillions of dollars in the United States on solar panels, on wind energy, energy technologies 
where is that money going to be spent? Is it going to be spent in the United States? No. Is it going to go to Middle Eastern oil producers, OPEC? No. It's going to go to the new OPEC. It's going to go to China. And that's the genius and the thing that is so scary about what's going on at the present time with these negotiations over renewable energy. Well, luckily, we have our chief negotiator on the job. <laughs> Again, right? John Kerry. God bless him. John Kerry. You know, I mean, if you want to get a deal, the, the man that brought you the Iran yes. nuclear deal, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> which... I guess in hindsight, maybe it was not the best for the United States. No, no, to say the least. I mean, I would say, you know, today we, we, we have with the supply chain problems and everything, used car prices are soaring. Yep. I would say if you want to sell a used cars to somebody, sell it to John Kerry because you're going to make a mint. This guy is one of the worst negotiators in American political history. In his defense, he's used to paying windsurf prices <laughs> right, for exactly. used cars, right? That's, so. that's right. And when you're married to Teresa Hines Kerry, you're not worried what price you're paying for used cars. But let's talk about uh, John Kerry. So John Kerry is the envoy on climate change, right? So his responsibility is to negotiate um, a sense the, the the Paris Agreement, which we pulled out of, withdrew from, which we are now back in by the Biden administration, but they want to add details to it. John Kerry is the guy negotiating that. He was the Secretary of State uh, uh, during the uh, uh, latter half of the Obama administration. So would have been involved in the Paris climate agreement absolutely well. he would have been involved had had a large uh, large influence on that so these absolutely. are a couple of, like not great deals john Kerry's right. negotiating that's right and he's negotiating the next one <laughs> so i'm just saying and oh by the way can't even get china to the table yeah they're not showing up and and th that's really remarkable if you think about john it john Kerry's like the guy on hold he's like no i'm gonna get to the restaurant at any minute we're, we're eating tonight but like no one's answering the right. phone could you imagine negotiating an agreement with somebody you're saying that we need this agreement because the p planet is going to burn up and die and the other guy doesn't even show up. Right. And so you show up anyway. You show up, you know, Reagan shows up in Reykjavik and Gorbachev isn't there. I mean, it's 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 astounding. But what's interesting about John Kerry is not that he's a terrible negotiator, although that's important. It's also that John Kerry has some very curious financial investments. Uh, and again, it involves this thread we've been talking about the whole time. It involves renewable energy companies and it involves China. So that you you know to kind of go back to like the Macbeth metaphor, right? Yeah, there, good, thank you. The uh, the Biden administration is definitely sort of fraught with conflicting tensions, right? Yes, because yes. you know President Biden when he campaigned, he made human rights and climate change two of his big foreign policy priorities. Correct. Well, when it comes to negotiating with China, you kind of can't have both of them, right? <laughs> That's correct. Because That's correct. while the, if you're trying to get them to come to the table, talking about China to alleviate or take steps to mitigate the possible climate change threat then they're going to insist that you not give them a hard time about their clear and obvious human rights abuses. Exactly. And John Kerry has made it very clear which side he comes down on. He comes down on the climate change piece. Whenever anybody even asks, as they did in May when he was testifying to the House, well, what do you think about some of China's human rights abuses, specifically like the Uyghur forced labor camps? Right. He's right. like, well, I'm going to stay in my lane on the climate change thing, right? Right. I'm going to do that, by the way. Next time you ask me a hard question, I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm just going to stay in my lane. <laughs> On that one. You've got a very large lane at the Government Accountability Institute. So well, that's uh, kind of you to say. So, <laughs> but but the point would be that uh, you know he's made it very clear. And so actually, Marco Rubio, uh, Senator Marco Rubio, Representative Chris Smith are, have actually accused John Kerry in a letter to the Biden administration of actively undermining right. their efforts 
to kind of wean the United States economy off of forced labor yeah. interest, right? And, and interactions. Yeah. And so they'd say, no, John Kerry. So, so there's that conflict of interest, right? Because his, his legacy is climate change. Right. But it's not just a philosophical one. I think he's also got some potential financial conflicts of interest as well. Yeah, that's right. He's uh, he's uh, got a personal stake of uh, at least a million dollars. Remember, when you're in uh, public service, you don't have to disclose the exact amount of your investment. It just has to be in, in a range. So this is in the range of one to five million dollars. He has an investment um, with a Chinese-based uh, equity uh, company called Hill House. Uh, and that includes an investment um, in Chinese companies that support surveillance technologies and solar panels. And to top it all off, you remember there's this debate about human rights versus climate change. The one I referenced a minute ago. Yes, I that's do remember ex- that. That's yes. exactly right. No, so, I didn't, so I didn't forget that. that. Exactly. So John Kerry made the philosophical distinction. His portfolios also made the distinction because the companies invested in use slave labor. And John Kerry apparently is okay with that uh, because he's getting the kind of return that he wants. And so, it, And it's not just him. Now, to be fair, when you got the kind of portfolio the Heinz Kerry family's rolling with, it could be difficult to keep track of everything. But Teresa Heinz Kerry also has an investment of at least a million dollars in a hedge fund that specializes in private partnerships and investments with Chinese government-controlled funds, right? That's right. That's so, right. So the Kerry's aren't dispassionate, right? They're not um, necessarily uninterested observers when it comes to things related to the Chinese government and Chinese economy. No, that's exactly right. And look, here's the bottom line. Anytime the people, even like the Carries who are very wealthy, say, uh, well, you know, um, uh, I couldn't, we didn't know we had this stake. It's really very simple. You're in charge of your portfolio. He could have said 10 years ago, to his investment advisors, we don't want investments in Chinese companies that use slave labor. We don't want investments in you know Chinese military companies. You can set parameters, and your investment advisors are obligated to follow them. So it's not an excuse to pretend and to say, "Oh, we didn't know about it." Um, that's just sort of a, a, an absurd position. So. We've had this conversation. We began with the Obama administration. Uh, we, we then went to the Paris uh, Climate Agreement, how that was negotiated. And we're now talking about the current conference um, that's taking place in Glasgow, Scotland. There are some really interesting threads that weave their way through all of those. What, what do you see as the most important threads? Uh, I would just say the fact that China has basically been the puppet master, right? And that everyone else is sort of like kind of going along and, and doing whatever it is. But China's in control. I mean, China sort of sort of right. seems to be beyond reproach. Even your guy, John Podesta, you mentioned who China paid to help set up the, the parameters of the thing. Who's John Podesta been uh, critical of? And as it relates to who's doing their part and who's not yeah. doing yeah. their part yep. when it comes to abiding by these climate change priorities, right? He hasn't been critical of China. He's been critical of Australia. He bashed them. He bashed Australia for, for their lack of commitment Dude, to climate good change. good old, you know, who do, who has a hard thing to say about Australia? Exactly. awesome. Nicest people. Nicest people. We love our podcast audience in Australia. They love a good time, you know, a bit of a walkabout. So, <laughs> you know, I got nothing bad to say about Australia, but John Podesta, he's criti- criticizing them for their lack of participation in uh, climate change stuff. When China, by the way, increased their carbon output just, I think, in the last year, their increase in carbon output last year was more than Australia's actual carbon output. That's exactly right. But he has nothing critical to say about China and yeah. their commitment to climate change. It is it is truly, uh, truly remarkable. So, look, 
To me, the threads that are important here is that China has manipulated this system very, very effectively for their benefit. And you've got enablers in the United States who, for a variety of reasons, sometimes is financial, sometimes is political, uh, who do not want to criticize them. They stand to be the big winners as we shift from a, a, a you know fossil fuels based economy to a renewable energy uh, economy. They're going to be the big winners because we are literally going to take taxpayer dollars in the United States and use it to buy trillions of dollars of green energy technology. And the bottom line is, is that China, even under this, this agreement that Kerry negotiated, still does not have to reduce its carbon imprint until 2030. And as you correctly pointed out, last year alone, China added more coal per, uh, energy capacity than the entire country of Australia. And there was no criticism at all of China. That's what's really struggled. So at the beginning of this, we discussed Shakespeare. You, you, after we got past the Romeo and Juliet uh, problem, that's the end of that play. Yeah, and then, then you describe to us the, the I think the great story about Macbeth. So, who actually are the witches? The witches play an important drama, an important point in this drama because they're the ones that sort of create the original idea, right? They vision cast, yeah. So, I think the witches are unfortunately China because I mean it, it is sort of brilliant what they've been able to do. And again, you you talked about the front end of this story when the Obama administration takes over and we invest in all this green energy technology that ultimately fails and then China kind of buys up, which I think is an important part of how they ended up yep. in this position today. But, and then John Kerry sort of is the guy, maybe he's like the Macbeth because he's got this vision whispered in his head. Right. And he's sort of unwittingly carrying out this thing that's only going to serve to benefit China. I mean, that's really, if you think about it, China says, hey, We'll participate in this deal. You guys do all this climate, you know, this carbon reduction stuff, which will be not necessarily great for your economy, right? Because there's right. this fundamental tension. Slows growth. Yeah. yeah fu- there, We'll continue to do our thing. So we're going to continue to grow our uh, economy. But while you guys are investing in to save the planet, you're also then helping our economy as well. That's right. And by the way, we promise you know, pinky cross at 20 in 2030, we are actually going to You guys go on ahead. We'll catch up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you go ahead. We'll catch up uh, with no agreement. And by the way, the last time that the Obama administration had been promised something by China, it was President Xi met with Barack Obama in 2015. And he looked him in the eye and said, we are not going to militarize uh, these islands in the South Pacific that are disputed. Within a year later, it was covered with Chinese military uh, units. So they do not have a great record of keeping the word. Uh, well, this is Peter Schweitzer. We've been joined as always uh, by Eric Eggers. Uh, we've been discussing uh, the climate uh, agenda and the climate conference as always looking below the surface beyond what is stated and what is said and looking at who actually benefits uh, and who is actually engineering uh, this system for their benefit. And I think we've uh, offered some you know very interesting clues as to what that might be. Uh, if you're interested in our podcast, and we hope you are, you can find them on thedrilldown.com. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you.